If you got your Bibles, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 19, uh, and then we're going to jump back to 2 Samuel chapter 18. So uh, this, uh, these next two messages that we have uh, are very much teaching and training in righteousness messages. And so uh, we're going to talk specifically through these next two weeks, the death of Absalom, but then the unifying of the nation. Now here's the deal. Fight the urge to look at the next two messages as a viewpoint on the country and the world, look in the mirror, all right? We want you to look in the mirror on this and analyze your personal situation and how something that has been disunified can come back into connection and be unified. The way that God reunites the nation of Israel happens through, this is so interesting, dealing with a character named Joab, okay? So if you got your Bibles, open to 2 Samuel 19. We're going to talk about unification, the way, again, uh, unity in, a, uh, in our work environment, unity in our home life, uh, unity in areas where we are serving in leadership. Uh, it starts with this question. Have you ever experienced a unified moment when things were previously divided? you ever experienced a unified moment when things were previously divided? Now, if you notice, I didn't say, have you ever experienced division before? Some of us are living it right now, right? Uh, living in division, and again, you understand that the world can be divided. The moment that's so special and holy in nature is when you watch things that are off all of a sudden come into a line and peace is available where there was no peace before. Joy is available where there was no joy before. Again, unity uh, comes into focus. Um, I can tell you, uh, for me personally, um, I got to uh, my very first job was at First Baptist Church in Post, Texas. Uh, it was a very crazy, uh, amazing story the way it came together. Your first ministry job really is a miracle uh, because you don't have any experience. And so uh, I remember the way that the interview came together. I was waiting tables at Red Lobster, and one of the couples that I was waiting on at Red Lobster uh, came up and said, hey, our, youth, our church needs a youth minister. Any chance you want to interview? That legitimately is the way I got the interview, was waiting tables. And so um, I then went and found out that the church, First Baptist Post, had a lot of problems, okay? Uh, and uh, the problems were previous to us getting there. By that I mean uh, the church had nearly split, and then it, the, uh, the trouble that had been caused meant that they were about to even close their doors. More than a 100-year-old church, and they were right on the verge of closing their doors. So three years before I got there, they hired an intentional interim pastor. Now, an intentional interim pastor means that they come in, ask the tough questions. They are not going to stay long-term as the pastor, but they ask the tough questions so that you can get down to the root of what split the church in the first place. So they brought in this professional. His name was Jim Hancock, one of the godliest people I've ever known in my entire life. And uh, Jim, for three years, asked the tough questions, and then they began to, where they had been divided before, start to come back together. Well, it culminated the day that I came in, what they call, in view of a call. Now, our church doesn't do this, but some of you may have grown up in a church that voted on every staff member that came through. Okay, we have a board that takes care of that, but in some churches, the whole, the whole church gets to vote on each individual. And so it's terrifying if you're the person being voted on, uh, because typically there's a kid or somebody that wants to see if the no votes even count. So they'll vote no for you, not because they actually want to vote against you, but just because they want to see if the vote counts. And so it's always kind of nerve-wracking. You have to get a certain percentage or you don't get the job. And so it's my very first job. It's my very first vote. And uh, I'll never forget, um, the church had been through such turmoil, but they were in a really, really good spot. Three years of intentional interim. So I get up I preach on the book of Job. is the only sermon I had at that point. I'm 21, 22 years old. I preach on the book of Job, shared it. I mean, it was a decent enough message. And then they have me go off to the side room 
And while I'm off in the side room, they voted, and then they bring out the chairman and deacons to share the count on the vote. Now, this is going to sound very West Texas, but the chairman of the deacon's name was Delbert, all right? And so Delbert walks up on the stage and says, all right, time to read the tally. And all of a sudden, the man walking up who has the ballot, has the ballot information, his eyes are filled with tears as he walks to the stage. Delbert looks at him, confused, takes the note, opens it up, and then his eyes fill with tears. He then turns and looks at me and says, it was unanimous. You get to come and work here. Now, here's what's interesting. Don't miss this. That, as good as I am, and I am great. All right, I'm just telling you. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That vote wasn't about me. That vote was about three years of work in that church. Three years of them asking tough questions, dealing with the tough past, and then coming together in that moment. His eyes welled with tears because they had done the work, and somehow, some way, even with a kid checking no just to see if no registered on the ballot, they came together and they made one unified decision. I got to reap the benefits of all that hard work that had been put in on that beautiful moment. Again, what had been disunified, asking the tough questions, going through the tough process, making those really, really hard decisions, all of a sudden brought the church back into unity. Now, I share that to say this with you. David is in a circumstance where David has overseen a mess. He had a mess in his family because he married too many women and he wasn't supposed to take more than one wife. He had a mess because his oldest son, Amnon, sexually assaulted his sister, Tamar, and David didn't deal with him either. Then you've got Absalom, one of his other sons, that murders his brother Amnon and David doesn't offer any consequences for him and it ends up splitting the nation right in two ideologically. And so here's the thing. All through our study, David's been dealing with problem after problem after problem problem and he and in some cases pushed it to the side and didn't deal with it and it caused all these other issues well he's come to the point now where he's ready to be the man after God's own heart he's ready to deal with the problems that are in front of him and that included one of his best friends and most trusted advisors a dude named Joab look with me if you will we're going to start at the end and then flash back to the story of Absalom's death look with me if you will second Samuel 19 and we're going to start in verse 13 Here's what it says. It says, And say to Amasa, David again is addressing the country, trying to negotiate his group, his family, in assuming the throne once again. But Amasa is the one who Absalom has appointed as the head of the Israeli military. So look at what happens. He says, And say to Amasa, say to the head of the opposing military group, Are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if from now on you are not the commander of my army in place of Joab. Underline, if you are not commander of my army in place of Joab. Imagine David in this circumstance having Joab as his trusted military leader for his entire military career. And then all of a sudden turning and saying, you know what, for the good of the country, Amasa, you are the opposing military leader, but I'm going to place you in this position of leadership because Joab has shown himself to be unfit. Look at what it says happens next. This is crazy. It says, he won over the hearts, look at this, of all the men of Judah. 
as though they were one man. Underline, as though they were one man. And they sent word to the king, return you and all your men. Now remember, return didn't just mean come back to the city. Return meant to assume the throne one more time. This decision to replace and demote Joab unified the country as one man. They had been split and divided on the issue of David's kingship, on the issue of sexual assault, on the issue of whether or not the royal family could commit murder or not. And what caused them to be unified one more time? It literally was kicking out one of David's chiefs of staff. For some of you, you need to know, if you are in a position of management and leadership today, sometimes... The person you have as your point person that you are really leaning on, they can actually end up being a cancer to any growth you could experience in your job situation, in your management situation, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your marriage situation. We're going to talk about that as we get a little bit closer. Dealing with somebody who needs to be dealt with is your job as the manager. Do you hear me? Dealing with somebody who needs to be dealt with is your job as the manager or as the leader. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? Sometimes the price of unity involves, remo- involves removing a close, capable friend that has become a willing companion to chaos. Sometimes the price of unity involves removing a close, capable friend that has become a willing companion to chaos. Um, I'm going to give a whole lot of movie examples today, and here's the reason why. Um, I don't want to discredit anyone that I've had to fire over the years. There were a lot of examples that, that kind of popped up where we had to deal with this. And sometimes not necessarily firing, but volunteers that we had to have tough discussions with. I care for them very deeply, just as much today as I ever have in my entire life. And so you're going to get a lot of movie examples today. Uh, hopefully, again, you'll see the heart behind your pastor in doing that. So Tombstone, my favorite movie of all time. The whole premise of Tombstone, you got Wyatt Earp and his brothers, they roll into town. And do you remember where they end up working? They show up at this hotel casino, and when they walk through the doors, it's the nicest hotel casino in the town, but nobody is in there spending any money. And they walk through, and Wyatt Earp walks up, and he goes, man, why is this the nicest place in town, and nobody is in here? And all of a sudden, there comes Billy Bob Thornton, playing a character named Johnny Tyler. Johnny Tyler is the Pharaoh dealer. He's one of the car dealers there at the uh, hotel. But he's belittling and yelling at anybody who's coming in trying to spend money. And so because of that, he's a bad employee. He's Again, he's a bad leader in that circumstance. He needs to be dealt with. So Wyatt Earp looks at the guy behind the counter and says, why are you keeping him as the dealer? He's running off all the game. And then you see the guy behind the counter go, it's just really hard to keep workers around here. Now, I don't know how many times I have heard that over the years when someone in the office needs to be dealt with and you are the person who has been charged with dealing with that individual and you just stay as the bartender behind the counter and go, it's just really hard to find people who want to do this job. Can I just tell you, living in D.C., if you've got a cool position and a cool job, there are a lot of people who would love to live here and to do what they're doing. If that's your deal, the problem is with you as the manager, not with them as the Pharaoh dealer. you got to step up. And so what does Wyatt Earp do? Wyatt Earp gets rid of Johnny Tyler. And by the end of it, Johnny Tyler's such a bully, he actually hands his shotgun over to Wyatt Earp and thanks him for dismissing him. Do you remember that whole scene in the movie? I'm telling you, when a leader stands up and leads, it's very easy for even those who dissent with us to fall in behind. So it begs this big million-dollar question today. You ready? What kind of person stands in the way of unity? 
What kind of person stands in the way of unity? For some of you, my prayer going into this service is that you would find the courage to stand up and lead in your organization, in your job, in your family, that you would find the courage to stand up and lead. And then listen, there's some of you in this room and you are the obstacle to unity. I'm not going to call you out today publicly, but my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would speak to you and convict you if you are the stumbling block to things being successful. Let's keep moving. You ready? Now flip back one page to 2 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 5. This is the death of Absalom. We've been building to this all these months, but we're going to focus on Joab today. Look at what happens in, the, in verse 5. Chapter 18, 2 Samuel 18, verse 5. It says, So the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. These are the three commanders of the big thousand-person battalion. Remember, it's about 4,000 men that David has, and they're going against tens of thousands from the nation of Israel. It says, look at this, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Underline, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving this order concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Stop right there for just a minute. Remember, this is not David saying, take it easy on my boy. This is David looking and saying, it's a civil war that we're fighting. Don't forget we're brothers. Don't be cruel in this circumstance. The goal is unifying the nation, not that we would stomp them into the ground. He says, be kind to Absalom for my sake because he's my son. Be kind to the others on the other side because many of them, they're your brothers, they're your cousins, they're your uncles. Make sure that you are good to them. Make sure that, again, even though we have to fight against them, that we are not cruel. Did you know that it was a rule in Roman culture that you could celebrate any victory except the victory that was civil in nature. If it was a civil war battle that took place, the ancient Romans refused to let you celebrate that type of win because all it did was weaken the country itself. David says, don't forget, we want to win this battle, but we don't want to hurt our brothers. We don't want to be cruel to those that we hope to reconcile with. It also is the desire of his heart to reconcile with his son Absalom, not to see him, not to see him skewered like a pig. Now look at what happens in verse 6. It says, The army then marched into the field to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There's an army, there, there the army of Israel was defeated by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest claimed more lives than the sword did that day. Remember, we talked about that last week, about it was a bad location. Absalom was inept as a leader, uh, and he ends up fighting in the forest. But the Lord provided because they didn't have to kill many of their brothers that day. The forest did the work. Now look at verse 9. It says, Now Absalom happened to meet David's men, and he was riding his mule, and then his mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, and Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair when the mule he was riding kept on going. Now look at verse 10. When one of the men saw this, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. But Joab said to the man who told him this, what, you saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. Underline 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. Do you remember the story of Abraham? 
When God calls on Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then all of a sudden there's a ram in the thicket that's able to be offered as the replacement sacrifice, that's what happens here. David has said to the men beforehand, we are counting on Almighty God to unify our country even though we're divided. And all of a sudden, here's Absalom, like the ram in the thicket in the story of Abraham that every little Jewish boy they're fighting that day would have known and would have been top of mind. He sees Absalom trapped. He sees that the war is over and that the king's request to not harm Absalom can come together. Maybe, just maybe, they can bring this situation together. And what happens? He goes and tells Joab, look what the Lord has done. Look at this. Our moment of unity has arrived. And Joab goes, why didn't you kill him? He goes, because the king told us not to. He goes, I'd have given you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. You ever seen like those rodeo belt buckles before? Okay, where I'm from, I'm telling you, it's a trophy that you wear right there just above your crotch. I mean, that's what you do, right? It's this big old belt buckle, okay? It's, it's, it's just, it's that you can walk in the room and everybody can know what it is that you've done. Have you ever watched WWE before? I mean, they make it even bigger, right? You got this massive belt that you wear and you just kind of strut around it. Now listen, he says, I'd have given you a trophy to strut around with. I would, as soon as you walk in the room, people would have known what you had done. I would have given you money. I'd have bought you lunch. Ten shekels of silver wasn't even that much. I'd have bought your lunch if you had done this for me. He goes, why didn't you kill him? Why didn't you end the war? And the young man comes back and says, because the king told us not to. Can you not see that this was a wonderful moment set aside by Yahweh, ordained by him? That the, that the nation could come back together. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? What kind of person stands in the way of unity? Number one, those who encourage rule breaking. Those who encourage rule breaking. Now, it doesn't mean that if your boss asks you to do something unethical that you should do it every time. But there are proper channels to go through in how we report that information and in how we bring it to light. And in some cases, if your hand is forced, you can always choose to quit. But the idea that you would get to the boss by creating some subversive group is not biblical and it is not godly. Amen? You need to know that. You ever had a meeting after the meeting in this city? You ever had that before? The meeting after the meeting is when the boss pitches an idea, tells you what you're going to do as a group, and then all of a sudden, people start nodding at each other, and they go, you want to go to lunch? Don't go to lunch with them. Don't do it. The meeting after the meeting, nothing good ever, ever happens. It's mutiny is what it is. And I'm telling you, you just start nodding. I'll never forget, was working in a situation one time, and boss asked for some things that I wasn't necessarily wanting to do, and the whole group, none of us wanted to do it. But all of a sudden, you start seeing some of these guys and ladies nodding at each other. And then they come up to me as kind of the wide-eyed young kid, and they go, hey, you want to go to lunch with us today? And I'm like, sure, I've always wanted to go to lunch with the cool kids, right? Just again, just a low person on the total ball. I was like, I would love to go to lunch with you guys. We go, and they just trash the boss up one side and down the other, trash the plan, and talk about how they're going uh, to make a move to, to be able to unseat him in one way or another. And I'm telling you, we're sitting at this lunch meeting, and I'm just like, man, this was awful. But I was just so grateful that they had asked me to go to lunch with them. I just didn't see it. Well, so I call my dad. Dad goes, what's going on now? I was like, well, I got this situation with our, with our boss. He was like, our boss? He goes, who are you speaking for? I was like, well, my friends invited me to lunch. And dad was like, oh, no. 
And I remember he goes, if they ask you again, he goes, think of something to get out of it. I go, but they're my friends. He goes, they're not your friends. He said, in fact, he said, many of them will be fired or they will abandon ship in the very near future. I said, how can you know that? You don't know them. He said, because I know the way management works. He said, if they try to stir a coup, he said, they're going to try to get you to be a part of it. He said, think of a reason to get out. I didn't think they'd ever even ask me to lunch again. But the very next week, as soon as something else crazy came out of the boss's mouth, guess what? It was all of a sudden, hey, Zach, you want to go to lunch with us? And I was like, my dad told me get out of it. You know what I mean? I stopped and I was like, um, I think I said, I've got to go to the dentist. And I remember I did not have a dentist appointment. And they were like, you seriously have a dentist appointment? I was like, yes, right now. I have to go. And I remember I called the dentist office. It was like, can I come in for an appointment? They were like, oh, I think we're booked today. I was like, I'm just going to come sit in the lobby then. And I drove up there. I didn't want to lie. So I drove up there, sat in the lobby, did not have a dentist appointment. But I, that was not my problem. Anyway, all that to say, just did anything I could to get away. Can I tell you what happened six months later? They were all gone. All of them. They were all gone. They were either fired or they left like a ship in the night because the coup had not worked. I'm just telling you, when it comes to a situation where you are sitting there and just tolerating that wickedness and you are listening to that disunity, you have to be the person that stands up and says, I'm not going to do this. And it doesn't mean that they cut you off as a friend. You were never their friend to begin with. If you're taking notes, write this down. You ready? A person that deliberately encourages others to undermine your leadership has no place on your team no matter how gifted they are. Let me say that again. A person that deliberately encourages others to undermine your leadership has no place on your team no matter how gifted they are. If you're the type of person that goes, but they're the only ones that can do this particular job that I need them to do. You are delusional. You are the bartender on Tombstone going, no, it's really hard to get people to work here. He was one bad employee away from that place being packed with people and having somebody like Wyatt Earp and his brothers running the joint. I mean, I'm telling you, one bad employee's removal, if you're doing it in the godly way, it doesn't mean you hate that person, but you have to deal with them. When we don't, you are the one who is unfit to lead. Save your spot there in 2 Samuel and flip open to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 22 through 28. Jesus had to navigate this as well. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 28. It says, Then they brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Underline, they brought to him. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. It says, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now stop right there for just a minute. Jesus is here in this beautiful moment. He's teaching the crowds. And then all of a sudden, the religious leaders walk up with someone who is blind and mute, possessed by a demon, and someone that is known in their circle to have those issues. This wasn't some random person in the crowd. This is someone that the religious leaders brought to him. This was the master's level course that Jesus had to pass, a pop quiz final exam right here at this moment. They walk up and they go, if you're really God, healed him. And Jesus goes, bada bing, bada boom, done. All of a sudden, he's healed, 
And then you have this moment where the crowd goes, oh my gosh, these guys that are trying to catch Jesus, again, these people stirring disunity have just been completely and totally silenced in this moment. The whole crowd starts to cheer. And then what do they do? The religious leaders look and they go, you passed our test, but you did it by the power of Beelzebub. You know who Beelzebub was? Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. He was the maggot god. They called him a god of resurrection because the idea was a dead, rotting animal carcass that the maggots would fly in, lay their eggs in the carcass, and then the animal would be resurrected through the maggots that would fly out of the dead carcass. Did the religious leaders believe in Beelzebub? No stinking way they believed in Beelzebub. But in that moment, they look at Jesus and they go, well, we can't deny that you did the miracle, but we're going to give you the absolute least amount of credit possible in this moment. You did the miracle, but you did it by the power of the maggot resurrection God. That's how you did it. Now look at what Jesus says there, because that level of disrespect, that level of disunity, look at what he says in verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself, will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand if satan drives out satan is he he is divided against himself how then can his own kingdom stand and if i drive out demons by beelzebub by whom do your people drive them out so then they will have their so then uh, they will be your judges but if i drive out demons by the spirit of god then the kingdom of god has come upon you he looks at them and says here's the deal with that attitude i will remove you from the equation you will be judged by by your own words. If you don't believe that I'm the son of God, he comes back and says, good luck standing on your own merit and the law. When it comes to your personal situation, spiritually speaking, that's what every one of us has to do. Trust Christ over our work, over our adherence to the law, over our good deeds. If you're counting on that to save you, you have no stinking hope. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God's holiness is counting on us not even being a smidgen sinful. Christ's blood has to cover all our sin. When it comes to management, if you've got somebody calling you out and testing you in front of the other employees, you as the manager, you as the leader, must deal with that person. You have to. Not hatefully, but they cannot continue to stir disunity for you to be able to move forward. Some of you need to deal with that person. And for some of you, I'm just being honest. I'm not calling you out today publicly. Some of you are that person. You are like a caged animal because of all the trouble that you've had at this particular job. You feel like they've been poking you with the stick. And as soon as that cage door is open, I've been there. As soon as that cage door is open, you are ready to bite their head off or bite their arm off just the second that they come towards you. Don't be that person. Don't be trapped in that mess. Allow the Lord to set you free. Deal with the issue or deal with the issue in your own heart. Look at what happens next. It begs the question, by the way, are you allowing someone to drill holes in your boat? Are you allowing someone to drill holes in your boat? Now flip back over to 2 Samuel chapter 18 and let's read verses 12 through 15. Oh, these are crazy little verses. You ready for this? 2 Samuel 18 Verse 12, he said, I'd have given you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, even if a thousand shekels of silver were weighed out into my hands, I would not lift my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you, Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. Underline for my sake. 
And if I had put my own life, or if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Man, what a powerful word from that employee to call out his commanding officer. He comes back and says, you would have distanced yourself from me if I had done this. You don't want to do the dirty work yourself, and you're going to try to spread the blame around. Look at verse 14. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand, and he plunged them into Absalom's heart, while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. Now look at this. And then 10 of Absalom's, 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and they struck him and killed him. Now stop right there for just a minute. The young man says, I'm not doing this. The king commands us against it and you want me to take the fall for this. And he looks at Joab and says, I'm not doing it. I'm not going against the order. And Joab looks and goes, I've had enough of this. And he's so surgical takes three javelin, pins Absalom to the tree, but doesn't kill him. Hits him in the heart so that he will die, but he doesn't kill him himself. And then he gathers ten armor bearers to encircle him so that the last thing that hits Absalom's mind, the last thing to cross his eyes, is the homage to how Absalom killed Amnon. John Wilkes Booth yells out six semper tyrannis after he shoots Abraham Lincoln. South will rise again, six semper tyrannis. He yells out the motto for the state of Virginia. Anytime a king, anytime a president is assassinated, the way that the story unfolds, nobody just goes, we just have no idea. The way the story unfolds is so investigated that Joab at this point, comes in and says, I want them to remember when they tell the story, what could have started off with Absalom and the reconciliation, him stuck in the tree like Abraham's ram in the thicket. All of a sudden he comes back and says, hey, I want you to know and I want all future generations to know this was for my rapist friend Amnon. Circle around him, and the same way that you took Amnon's life, that's how we're going to take yours. That is just twisted. That is just sick. That is just wicked. If you're taking notes, that's our second point today. Again, question, what kind of person stands in the way of unity? Number one, those who encourage rule breaking. And number two, those who honor the wicked. Those who honor the wicked. You have got some individuals on your team, some individuals in your life, where they are, through association, affirming or defaming someone, and that affirmation or defamation is the defining characteristic of their life and of their job. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we desire for Him to be our identity. We desire for our relationship with Him to be the defining characteristic of our lives. And you need to know, for some of you, some of the affiliations that you have are hindering the gospel going forward. Now, it's not something where, again, you shouldn't have your preferences. And some of you say, you tell me not to work in government work at all. That's not what I'm telling you today. Listen, there is a razor-thin line to walk so that you are Christ first above all else, and then you are doing your job as the secondary attribute. Christ first above all things, my defining life characteristic. You'd say, Zach, how do you reconcile the two? Listen, there is a razor-thin line that we pursue in our relationship with God and we walk it. You'd say, how in the world do you do that? 
You stay in the word every single day and you pray, pray, pray. Every decision you make, even with parenting, some of you parents in this room, how in the world do we parent our kids with everything going on in the world today? How do we have conversations with them with everything going on in the world today? Stay in the word every single day and pray, pray, pray. I prayed so many times. God, put your thoughts in my mind, your words in my mouth. Bring to light what it is I'm supposed to do. Psalm 119, 105 says, God, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Remember, lamp to my feet is for micro decisions, moment by moment, day by day. Macro is shining bright like the sun. Again, it's a light to my path. It shows me in the long term where it is that I'm headed. For some of you, affirmation and defamation are what are keeping your relationship with God and the word of your testimony from having the power and the umph that it could possibly have. I'll give you an example of walking the line. So I am a graduate of Oklahoma State University. Go Pokes. All right, there it is. Go Pokes. Okay, I figured there'd be a few of you out there, all right? Anyway, there you go. Thank you, all right? So because of where we're located up here, we are three hours from West Virginia. So every time a Big 12 school plays against West Virginia, I get called by our old contacts to go and do chapels for them. And so Texas Tech, Oklahoma State, and then I got some ties to the University of Oklahoma, okay? And so, again, growing up where we did and, uh, and, and then, of course, uh, being a, an Oklahoma State grad, it's tough to do the chapel for University of Oklahoma, all right? Tugs at my heartstrings just a little bit. But, again, Paul says, I've become all things to all men that I might save some. And so there it is, right? So here's the picture. I'll give you the story to say this. I bleed orange, okay? It's who I am. But the head coach up until a little bit ago of University of Oklahoma was a guy named Lincoln Riley. I grew up in Lubbock, Texas. Lincoln grew up like 45 minutes away in a little town called Muleshoe, Texas. And so the staff that he put together there at OU, we knew all those guys. In fact, Ruffin McNeil, who was his assistant head coach for a long time, Ruffin and my dad were very, very close friends. And so I get asked to go and preach in my dad's old spot, doing the chapel for University of Oklahoma. And I've got these OU friends that are like, or OSU friends that are like, what are you going to do? I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, are you going to wear an OSU shirt to preach that chapel? And here's the deal. I can tell I'm going to lose respect with them. You know what I mean? And so here's what I do. I sit down. I pray it through. And then all of a sudden, I made a phone call to my friend Joe Whitney. Okay, Joe is a rabid OU fan that I worked with years ago. I called Joe, and I said, hey, I need a favor. I said, can you buy me an OU shirt? He goes, absolutely. Where do you want it sent? I mean, he was like immediately. There was no hesitation. He was like, absolutely. Where do you want it sent? He was like, and why won't you buy it? I was like, because I refuse to spend any money on that university, all right? I said, I refuse to do it. That was part of my line. I said, but if you'll get me one, and I said, he said, what color do you want? I said, get me one that has black stripes on it, okay? So he gets me this OU shirt with black stripes on it, and the reason I wanted black stripes was because I could wear underneath it my orange and black OSU shirt, underneath the OU shirt, and then I could put that one over the top. You have to preach the chapel in a logo tee for the team. Can't be ashamed of the colors. And so I remember I walk in, and Lincoln's like, man, you're in an OU shirt, Randalls. What are you doing? And I was like, yeah, check it out. You know what I mean? You had to show him underneath what the true colors were. He was like, I appreciate you doing that. Now, I share that story to stay with you. I preached the chapel. It was about being a Christ follower first above all else. But I did find a way in my heart of hearts to make sure that OU shirt didn't catch fire the second I touched it to my body. And so, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, the whole picture. Find the way to walk the line. Christ follower first. And then if you've got these other affiliations, 
It's a fun deal. Cheering for college football, cheering for a sports team. Again, political affiliations. These are good things, but they cannot be the defining characteristic of your life. Even if it's your job here in the city, it cannot be the defining characteristic. Again, if you're taking notes, write this down. Unnecessary affirmation or defamation can polarize a group that should be singularly focused on the cross. I'll say that again. Unnecessary affirmation or defamation can polarize a group that should be singularly focused on the cross. Notice that I don't just say affirmation, but defamation as well. If you have hate in your heart for any group, that hate is your problem. You are allowed to hate one thing, your own sin. That's it. That's it. Any other hate in a believer in Jesus Christ's heart has us come short of the plan that God has for us and the attitude we should be carrying. Now, just for the record, not hating the world's sin, hating your sin. As far as it counts on you, hate your sin with all of your being because you are pursuing righteousness that you might have fellowship with Almighty God. Christ's shed blood covers our sin. But again, hatred in our heart, it will absolutely destroy us. If you don't believe me, Paul says it this way. Save your spot in 2 Samuel and flip open to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 14. Paul is in a city. Corinth was very, very much uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in, in social status like uh, the District of Columbia. And so what you have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is Paul addressing, because you have these Christians at Corinth that are like, our entire city is built on these feasts that are sacrificed uh, to mythical gods and goddesses that we don't believe actually exist. And so Paul comes back and he's like, what are you asking? And the, the parishioners go, are we supposed to go to the feasts? Are we supposed to go to these cultural visits? How am I supposed to be a blacksmith or a thatcher? How am I supposed to be an educator in these circumstances in Corinth if I don't go to the feasts, if I don't hang out while they're doing these pagan rituals? Look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. It says, Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Underline judge for yourselves what I say. That's Paul ways of, Paul's way of saying, I'm about to give you some really deep teaching here. Here's what he says. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake from the one loaf. Stop right there for a minute. Paul says when it comes to your participation in things of this world, identifying with them, he says it's bread and wine. But when we take the Lord's Supper, he said the bread symbolizes the physical pain that Jesus went through for us. I mean, when we drink the cup, it symbolizes his shed blood covering our sin. It's more than just eating bread and drinking wine. When we take the Lord's Supper, he said it's so much deeper. It's so much more intimate. Look at what he says next in verse 18. He says, consider the people of Israel. Do not be those who eat the sacrifices, or do not the people who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of the pagans are offered to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to participate with the demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Stop there for just a minute. Paul says when it comes down to it, Food sacrificed to idols is still just food, right? It's just food. He says, but because of what it symbolizes, 
it becomes something that is off limits to you, identifying with it. It doesn't mean that you show up at the idol feast, throw your hands up and go, you people are all sinners. This is all wrong. He says instead, abstain and don't attach yourself to this thing. It's a powerful, deeper teaching, especially in this city. The razor-thin line is there. You study Scripture, and you pray like crazy, and then the light of the Holy Spirit reveals the line to you. And you're able to walk the line as a godly employee, but first and foremost as a Christ follower. It begs the question, is your eternal impact diminished by unnecessary public affiliations? Is your eternal impact diminished by unnecessary public affiliations. Joab here, by standing up and screaming his version of Six Semper Tyrannus, him standing up and saying, this is for Amnon. I'm not just killing you, but we're going to kill you encircled the same way that you killed your brother over the rape of your sister. What he's done there is so vile, and it does not speak for David or the nation of Israel. Now look at what happens next. Last little couple of verses, 2 Samuel 18, let's read verses 16 and 17. It says, so then Joab sounded the trumpet, underline Joab sounded the trumpet, and stopped, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab had halted them. Underline for Joab had halted them. Look at him. He's overextended. He is the one who's taking control here. He's the one trying to put himself as the king. Verse 17, so they took Absalom and they threw him into a big pit in the forest and they piled a large heap of rocks over him. Underline, they piled a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. Stop right there for just a minute. It starts off with the passage of, again, Joab sounds the trumpet. Joab halts the troops. He's the one who has overexerted himself in this moment. And then the king has said, for my sake, don't harm him. And what does Joab do? Joab goes, I'll tell you what that dude deserves. Chuck him in a ditch. Let's cover him with rocks. And the king won't even be able to come to his own son's grave to mourn for him. What he has done here is so deeply disrespectful in this moment. Chucks him to the ground, covers him up with rocks. And what he's done here, again, has been screaming at David, deal with me. If you're taking notes, write this down. What kind of person stands in the way of unity? Number one, those who encourage rule breaking. Number two, those who honor the wicked. And number three, those who intentionally disrespect authority. Those who intentionally disrespect authority. Now, just for the record, there is a difference between someone under your care blowing off steam and someone truly disrespecting authority. Any of you who are managers in this room, you understand that sometimes your employees are going to be frustrated. My wife and I, there was a famous discussion that she and I had where I told her I felt like we were called to plant a church in Washington. And do you know what she said in her eyes? Forget it. There's no way. She said, there's no steady paycheck. She goes, how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to take care of our kids? There's no medical insurance attached to planting a church, right? I mean, she looked at me again with wisdom in her eyes, and she said, I don't think so. As half of this family's leadership, I don't think that we're going to do that. A good leader understands that sometimes there is sticker shock, and sometimes there is frustration when somebody else offers an order, somebody else offers insight into what we should do. So guess what happened? Over time, she came around to it, and then she has been the one so deeply filled with faith even more than I for so many decisions that have happened here at the church. I want to encourage you. When someone blatantly, intentionally disrespects, they are screaming at you as the leader, deal with me. Deal with me. And when you choose to not do anything, 
They think in their head, then I am the one in charge. I am the one in control. And I'm telling you, it turns into a situation that you do not want it to be. Now, just for the record, for some of you married couples in this room, you've been going through this service and you're just like, yep, that's why I'm throwing him or her out as soon as the service is over. Thank you, Pastor Zach. No, that's not what you're supposed to hear today. Whenever your spouse or your child is the one looking at you and saying, deal with me. They're screaming at you, deal with me. What they are really saying is, communicate with me. Talk to me. I want your attention. We have to go through this together. Don't just fire off orders at me. I want to walk through this. I'm teaching you power if you're listening, if you're married in this room. They're screaming at you for communication. They're screaming at you for a conversation. I'm telling you, don't be the one that just draws the line in the sand and says either you're with me or you're against me. In those closest relationships, bring them along in the journey. But that blatant disrespect, when it comes to your kids, some of you parents in this room, with your kids, you ever had your kid who was doing a really good job and then all of a sudden they got a friend that was blatantly disrespectful of any type of authority. And you watch it. Your kid is capable of wickedness. Don't hear me say that your little kid is perfect, all right? They're capable of wickedness. But all of a sudden, you put an instigator alongside them, and they start going in step together. When that takes place, you as the parent step in and offer the boundary. It's your job. And if you don't, and you don't do it quickly... And all of a sudden, that outsider's voice becomes louder and more influential than yours. And you stinking gave birth to them and raised them. You hear me? We got to come to the point where we don't allow blatant disrespect. It's splitting the group. It's tearing the cloth across at the seams. And it's so difficult to get that back together. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? Know the difference between someone blowing off steam and someone establishing a challenge to your authority. Know the difference between someone blowing off steam and someone establishing a challenge to your authority. One last little movie example, and we'll call it a day. I love the movie City Slickers. Now, just for the record, I'm not trying to, uh, what was my term here? I'm not trying to uh, honor the wicked, okay? There's some bad language in that movie, okay? Uh, but uh, uh, I love the movie City Slickers. The basic principle is Billy Crystal is about to turn 39 years old. Uh, and in the movie, he's going through all this struggle, but he himself has a problem with authority. He's got a problem at work. He's got problems at home. He's having trouble leading. And so uh, there's a character named Jack Palance. Jack Palance plays Curly, the old cowboy. And uh, he's the one leading him out on the trail, and he's the leader, okay? So Billy Crystal's wisecracking, saying these things about him because he doesn't have any background riding horses or driving cattle. And so they just kind of get at each other, and Curly says something that Billy Crystal feels like disrespects him. And so then it culminates where they're around a campfire and Billy Crystal's friends are all here and Curly is walking up behind Billy Crystal. And you remember the scene, his spurs are jingling as he walks and Billy Crystal's looking at the group, having the meeting after the meeting, you know, with the rest of the group. And he looks and he goes, he's a lunatic. We're being led into the wilderness by a lunatic. He's behind me, isn't he? And then all of a sudden you hear it, Curly from behind him stands up and goes, time to turn in. And the entire group goes, good night. And they turn and they run off in the opposite direction. At that point, Billy Crystal turns around and he goes, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. And then Curly fires off a comment at him. All that's to say, in that movie, Curly doesn't fire Billy Crystal or push him off the trail. 
he takes him off to the side, remember? Puts, takes him under his wing and then walks him through some of his life decisions. For some of you, you've got some people in your life and they are screaming at you, communicate with me, talk to me, let me be part of these big life decisions that we're making. But then there's some people that are looking at you and going, deal with me because you're the boss, but I'm in charge. That level of disrespect, they chucked Absalom's body into an unmarked grave. They packed a whole bunch of stones on top of it, and it was basically where they could say, yeah, we don't know where your son is, David. Why don't you go trudge through the forest, and maybe you can find him. That dude doesn't need to be thrown out of the country, but he did not need to be leading the military. Amen? He did not need to be the second-in-command in Israel any longer. So my prayer for you today, our final question, if you got it, is, is there someone you need to deal with? Is there someone you need to deal with? That's been my prayer leading into this. For some of you, you got people in your life and you need to have a discussion. You need to deal with them. From a work standpoint, it may be time to fire somebody. It may be time to start moving along. From a family standpoint, it may be time to reopen the lines of communication. And for some of you with your kiddos, it may be time to draw some boundaries so that you can be the parent again and they stop spending time with somebody who is discipling them in blatant disrespect. And if you don't do it now, I could tell you story after story of people who are having this conversation from through prison glass. I'm telling you, you got to deal with it. It's the most loving thing that you could possibly do. Thanks for listening. What a first message for a Miracle Theater, all right? Some of you got people you need to deal with. Um, I'm so grateful that y'all were here today. Day one of sermons in the books for Miracle Theater. I only had to preach twice today. I feel like I, feel like I got a whole bunch of energy. No, I'm just kidding, okay? Best part of the service is right now when we do our time of reflection. Let's bow our heads for prayer.